Welcome back, everyone. It's your host, Kat. Today's episode is going to be something completely different. All right, so I may have mentioned before, I went to the Psychedelic Science Conference in Denver this past June, and I loved my experience there. You guys, there was over 13,000 people there. And here's the thing that really blew my mind about this experience. When I went, if you just kind of like looked in, right, and you didn't know what this was about, you would have no idea that this is a psychedelic conference. You know, it wasn't uh, tie-dye and you know what I mean? Like if you had any type of a stereotype in mind of what a psychedelic science conference would look like, it wasn't that. It was held in the Colorado Convention Center. If anything, everyone was like well-dressed and I don't know, just different backgrounds. And it was so cool to connect with so many people that are either as stoked about psychedelics as I am or are working in this space or furthering it in some way. And it was a real treat to go. And so the first thing I want to do is just thank MAPS. I went as press for Trip on This. And this episode is basically going to be a bunch of interviews that I did with a just a a wide range of people. And that's why I think it's going to be really cool about this particular episode is that it's going to be about 10 or 15 minutes with, I want to say there's five or six different interviews on this particular podcast. So if you are listening and watching, I will be sure to actually make chapters. So if there's a particular interview that you want to catch, uh, you could just go straight to it. Or if you just want to be here for the ride and hear them all, they all are so different and all are incredibly valid. So let me just give you a quick little breakdown of who is up, who's going to be actually on this podcast. And then I'm going to do quick little intros before every single one of the interviews. So you guys are kind of caught up to speed about who you're hearing from in that moment. Cool. All right. So who do we have on here? We have Daniel Love, who's going to, who's the co-founder and partner of Beckley Waves. We have Firstman and Steve D'Angelo from Life is a Ceremony. It's a Rastafarian Jamaican retreat, a psilocybin retreat. We're going to have Dennis McKenna, of course, back on the show. Maria Ballet. She is a computational neuroscientist from Imperial College. We talked to Angela Alby, who is part of the, the psilocybin organ measure, measure 109, and what the implementation of that looks like. And then my friends over at Mount Mushmore, Stephanie Carzone Abrams and Joey Spangers. But before we get into this episode, I have a super fun announcement that I want to share. On October 20th, I'm going to be guiding an intimate dinner conversation with the visionary artist Alex Gray. Now, if you're asking me, Kat, who's Alex Gray? Okay, you guys, just Google him, look him up right now. He is one of the most celebrated, well-known psychedelic artists of our time. And what's cool is after the dinner event, he and his wife, Alison Gray, are going to be doing a live painting for the larger event, which I will get into. Okay, so let me describe the event. Mount Mushmore, who you're going to be hearing on this episode, teamed up with Euphonics to create a VIP dinner experience. I'm going to be guiding a conversation 
with Alex Gray, amongst other, a few other big VIP speakers who we can't announce quite yet, but there's going to be basically conversation peppered in throughout this dinner experience. So people would have a chance to mingle, to talk to each other, hear some interesting conversation in the psychedelic space, but really it's kind of like, think of it as like informal dinner conversation. And then after the dinner, if you, if somebody so chooses, then it opens up actually into the bigger event. The bigger event has three components to it. Well, I guess it's two components, but there's two stages. So the first component is then there's going to be a live artist showcase. So Alex and Allison Gray will actually be doing live painting during this event. And then other local artists will be showcasing their artwork. Then if you're there for the music portion of it, they have a dope lineup, you guys. It is really, really good. And there's going to be two stages. There's going to be one room that's going to be bass music and one room that's going to be house. So this is going, and it's going to go late, you guys. I was talking to them. It goes until four in the morning. So this is a full, full experience. If you're interested, I would love to see you there. You can use the code TRIPONTHIS to knock a little something off all of your tickets there. And so, yeah, I'll put all the link. I think I'll, I'll probably put it on the screen here. But what I'll do is I'll link everything in the description of this episode so that you can go straight to it. I'll put all the code information. And yeah, I'm super excited. So I hope to see you guys. All right, let's get into it, shall we? Next up, we have Firstman and Steve D'Angelo from Life is a Ceremony. Life is a Ceremony is a Jamaican mushroom retreat in an indigenous Rastafarian village. Firstman is one of the founders of Life is a Ceremony retreat. And the word that I would describe when I came away from my interview with him was gravitas. I felt such an incredible amount of gravitas from him and such a sense of grounding and calm that I really understood why he would have a retreat center. It kind of felt like that embodiment of someone who has really walked this path and has a lot to share. With him is Steve D'Angelo, a well-known cannabis activist who was working with Life as a Ceremony and has just been doing incredible work in general, particularly with his nonprofit, The Last Prisoner Project, which is dedicated to basically not stopping until there's all, all cannabis prisoners are free. Here's what they had to say. How is the mushroom viewed from the Rastafarian culture? Well, it's not necessarily a part of the Rastafari culture in that way because the Rastafari culture is governed by uh, colonial people lost from their own story and feeling and trying to find their way home. So culture for us now becomes more human culture, mm. right? Because we're not locked into our own story. So the medicine, the mushroom would have found us in that kind of an environment. And this is why the base of our story is that integration is not working uh, because all of the people are having personal problems. It's an environmental problem. And until we are able to fix that environment, and that environment has been our existence today of globalization is on the foundation of colonialism. So our space is almost focused on not necessarily um, about having that conversation, but looking at what needs to be restored. Interesting. And especially within the African consciousness, especially within the black people consciousness. But it's really all people. 
because it, being in a place like Jamaica, it gives you the opportunity to have the conversation with all people. Sure. So Jamaica is a space where you have the Europeans, they represent the plantocracy. You have the Indians, they came as indentured servants. Chinese are there. The Africans were there as the enslaved. So the total conversation of integration and evolving the human experience is embedded in these little Caribbean colonial islands. And, and, and that's the kind of conversation that um, um, these medicines are bringing forward, <laughs> you know, in how, how are we looking at this so we can have proper results from our integration. And this is why, you know, what, what, what these cultures bring to the table is an ongoing way of life. It's not a session. Yeah. You know, it's an ongoing way of life where we look at the teachings, we look at the, the message, and we incorporate them. Mm -hmm. And integration is not a moment. It's mm -hmm. your everyday. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is why life is a ceremony evolve itself that way. Quite literally in the name, life is a ceremony. <laughs> and all the things that it, when things come up in your world that, uh, you know, challenge us, how we respond to it is within that that's the ceremony. It's just in the same way during a psilocybin retreat or experience, something's coming up and it's forcing you to deal with it that is forever trying to hopefully teach us how to actually do it in real life in a way that's like, okay, can I be thoughtful instead of maybe reactive in this way? You have got it. Yeah. You know, you well, have thank got you. it. I don't yeah, think so, yeah. but I appreciate you well, saying it. <laughs> I mean, Rastafari is a vibration. Mm. That's how we feel. Mm. It's like in a time when nothing made sense, Ganja, mm. the philosophy of Africa that we retain, made you from inside, you felt something that could yeah. not necessarily be explained. So it is a vibration. Mm -hmm. That vibration leads over to everything. And the main, main element is tone. That's why sound is desirable. It's a big conversation. Yeah. And the only way we're going to get through it properly mm -hmm. is with the tone we choose. Mm -hmm. How do we speak to each other? How do we respond to each other? How do we give space? How do we recognize the necessity for boundaries for those who put it up? Yeah. What kind of a space are we giving for each other to grow? Yeah. You know? Especially in Western culture on that point, like there's a, there's a brashness that uh, is, there's a lot of just fight, fighting happening. And I always, you know, kind of being able to like, you know, be, be in the world. What is it saying? Like you're in the world, but not of it kind of yes, thing where yes. you kind of like step back and watch. And I'm like, but it's impossible to hear if you're putting somebody in self-defense, if, if you're yelling and insulting the other side, I was like, is this for you? Is this, is this for you to like just rally is like that the ceremony? Group? Is that the ceremony? Right. Is that the way how? Because this is one of the main things, you know, sometime in the therapeutic world. To be safe, they will say the person who is uh, sharing the medicine should not necessarily be taking the medicine. Mm -hmm. In our world, when you take the medicine, it's because you know you can connect. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and you know, you need the questions become clearer what to ask because yeah. you and the person are in the same field, in the same energy. Yeah. Right. And that, and, and those are the important things. You know, it, it prepares you for the tone. And most of the time when, 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 when it's a session, I don't want to say trip. 
Because I'm not against what anyone is doing. I'm not even against the anarchy. I think it's a necessary time. If we have the right tone, Mm -hmm. bring out all the anarchy. You know, we can be. Isn't that part of like the, from a, like a culture as well as like, talk to us a little bit about what it means to be Rustford. Because I, when I was in Jamaica, I was like, it's, it's a certain, I I wouldn't say, I want to say like not a religion, but how would you describe it for people? The best way is the same way that we speak about integration and why something like Rastafari that rise up as a cure for colonial imposition mm-hmm. would be so important because it is a way of life. Mm-hmm. It is something that when you feel a vibration of it, your response can only be love mm-hmm. because it, it, it consolidates you to look at the ultimate answer you know, through harmony, mm-hmm. through coexisting principles. Mm-hmm. So when Rastafari echo the vibration of one love, it's because there's no other way to respond. Yeah. There's no other way to respond. So when that became such a, a, a powerful message mm-hmm. to humanity, it was never ever about humanity. It was about humanity, including everything else, the water, the yeah. sky, you know. It, it impacts the way how we eat. You know, so a lot of people are vegans, sometimes are connected to health food. Yeah. Rastafari food science is connected to love food. Mm. It's not about living longer. It's about having this respect between yourself and animals. Yeah. Seeing that they have a family mm-hmm. and, you know, and they, they should not be food. Right. That's, right. that's the concept mm-hmm. of Rastafari. I'm not against any other person's concept, but that's, that's what the impact of Rastafari philosophy as created in our mindset, you know? So it's, it's that when you come from that space, you're coming from a space of earth people. Mm-hmm. You're coming from a place where the people see themselves as protectorate of naturality, mm-hmm. you know? And recognizing that becomes this kind of an instructive behavior, mm-hmm. a stance of what you represent. Yeah. And that's the earth, which includes all of us. Well, that was beautifully said. How about we now like throw it all the way back who are we talking to here today? Steve Firstman, I'd love for you to introduce. So we can address everybody who's here. It doesn't have to be. And I'd love for you to talk about a little bit. How are you working together, first of all? And tell us about why this is ceremony now. Yes. Uh, my name is Steve D'Angelo. I've been a cannabis activist for about 50 years and recently started uh, working to help support First Mun and Rastafari indigenous villages. They're uh, moving into the psychedelic space. And Les Prison Project is yours too, right? Yeah, over the years I've, I've founded a number of different organizations and companies. Yeah. Uh, one of the more recent uh, was the Last Prisoner Project, which I launched in 2019. Awesome. Firstman? Yes, um, I, I'm Firstman from Rastafari Indigenous Village, a space that we have created um, in Jamaica. I, um, Steve, I've, I've found a lot of uh, heart you know, um, for the plant. Um, Ganja has really been what has opened up our space to connect to each other. So it's our source plant, as all others are, but Ganja has played that significant role in our life. So we connected there, and we have just connected on so much similarities as it relates to the power of these plants, the changes they can make, the difference if we listen to the teachings, you know, and, and how we see that society, there's hope. 
<laughs> you know, we are convinced that there is a there is a level of hope. It's the first time in human experience that we're able to keep a, a meeting as a human family, as how we can occupy the planet together. So even the destructions of technology can also serve some good in this process. I love the message of hope. I mean, ultimately, I think that's the thing that I always want to like keep restoring. It's like, no matter how dark it looks right now, I, I talk to individuals all the time that are coming back to themselves and like doing things different. And whether it's through psychedelics or honestly grief or different ways that people are changing. And that's ultimately like the more we change ourselves, we change our immediate, the people around us change and then they impact others. And then ultimately then our children and how we like move it forward. And so I always just like to like hear whenever I hear the voice of hope still just being like, it's easy to look at the news and see darkness, you know, and bleak and that's fear works as like a catch, you know, clickbait or whatnot. And so I just, I love that message. I would love for you to talk a little bit more specifically now. What, what is a day, who is life as a ceremony for, first of all? Who's, who's the kind of people that like, is it for people with depression, but seekers, you know, who, who are some of the people that are coming to the ceremony? Uh, it's really for people who are willing to be accountable, you know, for their behaviors and actions and willing to be in a harmonious relationship with life beyond just the human world. So once you are willing to stand in, you know, build a philosophy that can stand up to scrutiny, that we are interdependent on every living thing, that's who life is a ceremony for, you know. So it's that coexisting relationship that you're willing to expand. Mm -hmm. it's, it's to turn up knowing that you are an expert in the relationship that you have already have, mm -hmm. and now you're willing to evolve mm -hmm. in some uh, way into the, the eternal now, which is the fact that we are a part and co-creators of what is happening, and embrace that responsibility. Mm -hmm. That's who life is. Did you want to ask them too? Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, we we are really designed more for people who've already had a little bit of psychedelic okay. experience. Yeah, great. Folks who are who are interested in other cultures, mm -hmm. maybe folks who are interested in learning a bit more about Rastafari. Mm -hmm. We especially hope to welcome change makers uh, so that we can provide an environment, a container mm -hmm. where people who are maybe feeling a little bit burned out and maybe need a little bit more inspiration, who want the path to be lit a little bit more brightly and come down and have this experience not as tourists, not as patients, but, but as our sister and, and brethren coming. I'm, I love it as just a, an, another like very unique offering to this space because so much of it has been around, well, first a, a lot around, like it's a lot of first time, you know, psychedelic users are going down and there's certain, there's certain obviously retreats that are more set up for that, but just knowing like, this is a, a different, Coming, for coming correct with yourself and responsibility and you know, how to like take action. It's a, it's about that. Let's, you know, as I say, integration will continue to fail. I let this become a way of life. Belong people are open to have the conversation about what the planet is doing now and a role to restore it. Yeah. And this is why, as I say, you know, central to these conversations is always going to be Africa. It's an elephant in the room, mm -hmm. you know, and it is something that is very, very important that we as humanity look at, mm -hmm. feel place mm -hmm. with it, and and start to see 
how we can restore ourselves and our own self-respect, mm-hmm. you know, to move the conversation of the human experience mm-hmm. forward. Because that's a power. I, I, psychedelic, I'm just here. It's the first time I'm interacting with the terminology in a mm-hmm. real way in terms okay. of meeting the community. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's, not, it's not necessarily a connection that I have, you know, where we're in the earth people. So everything that says plant medicine, earth medicine, all of those is a vibration. Um, I'm feeling I'm, I'm, not, I'm not connecting to psychedelic as a way of life mm-hmm. you know so I'm trying to I, but this is like my second third day yeah, you know yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm still <laughs> yeah no, no, but it's I'm cool. still in the earth the, you know, the, 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 truth, the, the truth, truth is like but I love it like words words do hold their own vibration absolutely yeah. and I'll say for me like psychedelic has always been more where it came at and yet it's what's connected me back to earth right and so it's actually um, as far out as the experience can be, there's nothing like a mushroom trip to actually get me in my body more yes. and to actually realize that I'm part of this. Right. Earth. So it may be one part of our family mm-hmm. that for some reason has been disconnected and the part that they can walk to Earth is a psychedelic part. Mm-hmm. But then for the people who are there already, yeah. Yeah. They may not necessarily see it as psychedelic okay. because they're already. It's there. already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no, that absolutely. Well, I, it's, I'm, I'm not fixed. I'm, I'm experiencing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I get things. Yeah, yeah. Let me just go with the flow. What are we doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, it's a space. It's a teaching that it gives us is that we need space. Yeah. Yeah. To absolutely. embrace each other's boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, psychedelic. When I think about the first thing I came, when I keep walking through this space, I keep thinking, United Nations. And I felt like we should just go and give medicine to everybody. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You know, and, and when I'm like, the United Nations is here. Yeah. The people, you know, and they have an opportunity to redefine this conversation. Yeah. You know, because all the layers are there, whether you want to call it political, whether you want to call it spiritual, whether you want to call it healthy way of life, all the conversations are happening right here. What, one of the things that distinguishes the experience at Rastafari Indigenous Village from most retreat experiences is that we are not explicitly therapeutic, right? We have more of a full spectrum experience for folks that everybody works through some level of trauma in every plant medicine visionary experience, right? But we also connect with each other in yeah. interpersonal connection. We also connect with Mother Earth and with nature, right? We also think about the world that human beings have built and and whether that world's in alignment with the desires of our heart. Mm -hmm. So when we think about integration, it's not to help a wounded person more easily fit back into the world that wounded them. Mm -hmm. It is about empowering our sister and brethren to go back to the world that wounded all of us so that we might make changes together so that we stop being wounded moving into the future. Yeah. Warriors need care. You know? mm-hmm. Warriors need care. And it's, a, um, it's not warrior because you have been taking psychedelics or whatever, but for the people who have, mm-hmm. you know, um, because for years, we as Rastafari Indigenous Village, we never really shared outside of our space, you know, and we just kept it in that ecosystem alone. And we still smudge each other, we still, yeah. you know, deal with the struggles that each other is going through, 
it's it's so even though it is not therapeutic we're there for caring each other yeah that's a that's a whole idea you know so our our it's loving it's yeah. a it's a very it's a very very loving space i tell you you know because everything is there just to try and help someone to go through their own process you know it's like Rastafari indigenous, but it's trust your process. Yeah. And everyone is just there to ensure that your process can be evolved into where you want it to go, you know, yeah. and, and to experience your own vibration, you know. So you're the teacher of your own self because yeah. nobody knows it better than yeah. you. But you're me and you're he and you're yeah, he and you're yeah, everyone yeah. that is connecting together in that space is, 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 is it's, it's, just, it's the promotion that your trauma is environmental. It does not belong to you. Right. It belongs yeah. to the planet. Everyone, everyone is good. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. everyone is owning it, they have PSD. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like they're making it all personal. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, there's something happening in the environment of existence. Yes. That's like if you're living the human experience, you're, you're like, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, but I love, I love care, like pulling that out again. Like just that, that is like, okay, so in a retreat, you're being cared for. Right, you're being cared for by the people that are serving the medicine, the, the, the facilitators, whoever's there holding that for you. And well, it's a care space. A care. So it's important that you care for yourself as well. well. Exactly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> but that, but that's a perfect. That's the. That to me is then the parallel now of how to bring that back into your walking integration. Is what were the ways in which was that taking five minutes to to silence myself? Is that not looking at my phone? Whatever care is in that space or and also maybe even asking for support if you're someone who doesn't normally want to quote burden other people with what's going on but you actually yeah need... it, it falls in man once you yeah. get there you will feel that it is set up for care yeah you know what i mean and 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 so in other words when you go into a ceremony you know it, enough amenities are there to make you comfortable in those spaces you know, the food is, is there's, there's an intake that where the care actually starts from, you know, who are you mm -hmm. in your present moment? You know, how do you sleep? How do you eat? Mm -hmm. You know, the standard things about you, um, you're encouraged to keep focus on what is, what works for you. Yeah. So there's so many things in this, in, in this medicine space that I can see sometimes in the intake, people will tell you to fast, to do this, to do that. We sort of encourage people to be themselves, yeah. you know, just let us know what that is and we kind of create. Because the experience has really taught us that when, so for example, if you're used to drinking coffee in the morning mm -hmm. and you come on into this experience, we have to kind of meet you where you are because when you don't do your norm, you know, and if, but, and if you're a coffee drinker, yeah, I, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. I, I, I cut it off, but like, it's so not like that. Then you start to have the headaches, your mood changes, your mood changes, yeah, yeah. and then you know you're not cool in the space. And know? then it's actually not integrating because if you're like, okay, so now I'm just doing a pocket of, right, like I'm changing behavior in for this moment, and then I'm going to go right back to my coffee behavior. Then you're not actually maybe asking. She's asking the question of like how to take ceremony quite literally into life. Right. You know, exactly. Like. Exactly. You know, so it's 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 a difference between, you know, knowledge is the curse and awareness is the light. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you're fixed into knowledge and, and, and traditions, 
which are so important, but then to meet you where you are so you can have their own awareness of self is the kind of container that we are we have created, you know, for the experience yeah. of your journey with the medicine. Yeah. Very cool. Are you ready to get all psychedelic over here? All right. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Firstman and Steve D'Angelo. Did you guys feel the gravitas that I was talking about with Firstman? Like, whew, it just felt. Speaking of gravitas, my next interview was with Dennis McKenna. Now, I've had Dennis on the show already, but getting to hug this man in person was so much fun, and we talked about totally different things for this conversation. Dennis McKenna is an ethnopharmacologist, a researcher, author, and of course, the little brother to the psychedelic luminary, Terrence McKenna. Let's hear what Dennis had to say. Dennis McKenna, legend in the psychedelic space. He's the little brother, Terrence McKenna. He's been doing amazing work. They both went off in their own directions. I'd love for you to tell everyone a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing. Well, as you say, I've been working in psychedelics for a long time. I mean, I wouldn't call a lot of it work, you know. <laughs> Ever since I was a teenager, I've been fascinated by psychedelics, yeah. you know. And lately, I am, you know, I'm positioning myself as an ethnopharmacologist. I have this foundation, the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy. That's well, not a foundation, but it's a nonprofit. And it's basically about psychedelic education, you know, and uh, we're working uh, on a project now to restore an herbarium in the Quito's Peru. This has kind of become our main sort of preoccupation right now is to try to raise funds for that. But we have done other, we did, well, I, we did these ESPD 55 conference or ESPD conferences, which people will be interested in. First in 2017, ESPD stands for the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. Okay. And we did uh, we did one in 2017 before there was a McKenna Academy or anything like that, and. Uh, that was that was the 50th anniversary of the original conference, wow. which took place in San Francisco in 1967, which was sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. Mm -hmm. I had nothing to do with that one. Right, I was right. 17 at the time. Yeah, but the symposium volume came onto my radar after it was published at age 18, and it was an inspiration to me. I realized that. Ethnopharmacology is a real discipline and that I could become one. And yeah. the book was very inspiring. So inspiring, in fact, that uh, I decided they were supposed to have follow-up conferences when they originally did it every 10 years or so. But the war on drugs intervened and they became embarrassed that they had anything to do with this sure. topic. Mm -hmm. But I remained inspired. So we did we did ESPD 50 in 2017, and then we just did ESPD 55, the 55th anniversary last May. In Amazing. All, all of these are in the UK. People can look at ESPD55.com, okay. and uh, all the uh, information is available. It's open access, but you have to make it make an account, yep. put in an email and a password, then it's all open. I love that. And from that, you can see all the ESPD 50 presentations as well as the ESPD 55 presentation. For you, what's, what is it like to now, we're at this conference, there is 
there's like we said, 11,000 people here for psychedelics. I mean, if if this isn't like we've arrived for someone like yourself who has been has known about psychedelics, the power of psychedelics, have been talking about this. What is it like to walk down the hall and be a celebrity here? Straight up. You don't want to be a celebrity. <laughs> I mean, it's a mixed bag, frankly. Yeah. You know, because it's nice to be liked. It's nice to be loved. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd also want to be able to, like, walk to the bathroom without yeah. you know, five conversations. <laughs> you know, so in some ways, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm basically an introvert. So I, uh, you know, but people do you know, like me for whatever reason. So it's it's nice to be recognized, yeah, I guess. Yeah. But now I feel like in some ways, you know, I I mean I'm still working in the area, but I am not doing you know, I'm not doing psychedelic research, right. like botanical research. I'm uh working on this, as I say, this project to restore this herbarium. So my focus has shifted a little bit. Oh it's completely Relevant to psychedelics, but yeah. it's not so much about psychedelics it's anymore. Got to yeah. keep it fresh. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about what are you going to be talking about at this conference? Well, this is what I'll be yeah. talking about. Yeah. This biognosis, uh, which means life knowledge, has to do with uh, bringing scientific and traditional folk knowledge, uh, you know, indigenous knowledge about these plants together, creating this nexus in the form of this herbarium uh, in Iquitos, which I've had an affiliation with for over 50 years. I first went there when I was a graduate student, 1981. And the person that was uh, sort of assigned to me as a student, the guy that the director of the herbarium at the time said, you know, take this gringo into the field has <laughs> no idea. He has the clue, just bring him back alive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you happen to collect some plants along the way, that's great. Yeah. Maybe yeah. bring it back alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which Juan did. And uh, we have been friends and collaborators ever since. And now he is the curator of the herbarium and, mm-hmm. and is actually. Uh, almost ready to retire himself. So, you know, that was 50 years ago that we, 19, was it 50 years ago? Roughly 40, Mm -hmm. 41 years, something like that, that we formed our relationship and we've worked on various projects. And so now we're, we're trying to save this herbarium and not only save it, but bring it up to the next level. You know. Yeah, what, what does that look like? I'd love to, and when you say an herbarium, I'm thinking of like uh, like a, a nature, like plant, like can you describe an herbarium? Herbarium for... is a library of dry plant specimens, okay. preserved plant specimens, okay. pressed specimens, you know, like you've seen herbarium sheets, you know, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's like, you know, that the specimens have information about uh, the plant, if if they know what the plant is, the family, where it was collected, who collected it, when, and and sometimes why. You know, there's often information on the labels about uses and things like this. Mr. Barry, the use too. I'm so sorry to cut you off. The uses of these things. So the it's not just is it just having them, or is it? Are you also thinking about like what are the, some of the practical ways that you're kind of bringing 
this herbarium into? Well, the herbarium in Iquitos has 150,000 specimens in the herbarium. 50,000? Right. But only 50,000 of them are mounted and actually incorporated into the catalog. Uh So there's 100,000 that that needs to be done for. So that's part of the project. Um, That's probably... New species being named? Well, these things are just in bags and boxes when they were collected. They've never been unpacked, you know, because there's no one to to do the work. Mm -hmm. And there's no place to put them. So, you know, we're trying to raise money for that to cover basically you know work study students we need to hire an army of peruvian biology students to go through these collections and mount them and so on but then our and then create this digital database and put that online that the virtual herbarium all all herbarium pretty much does do this This is standard practice, you know, these days. That's what mm-hmm. herbaria do. So you want to create a digital herbaria, but we want to go another step and turn it into an immersive environment mm-hmm. using e, uh, VR and uh, AI technology so that rather than just a database of plant images, you can actually, you know, cruise into it as though you're flying over the rainforest, you know, mm-hmm. and the... And the locations of the collection are scattered through, and then you could click a, a node, a marker, pull up the record for that collection, and and then that can be linked to other types of databases of interest, like genomic or ethnobotanical. Yeah. So, are they are are you? Is each specimen being researched for a particular? Um, like, are you figuring out like what what they might do? Some of them you know, in this case, not psychoactive, but like what some of the properties may mean? Well, this this will be a resource for people looking into that. Okay, so it's a catalog for people yeah. to be like, okay, yeah. I want to study it, that. It's a catalog for anybody with an interest in Amazonian plants okay. for whatever reason, okay. you know. Okay. Drug discovery, medicinal yes. use, it, you know, cool. ecology, climate change, all, mm-hmm. all of that. And it will be particularly useful to the people at the university UNAP, the National University of the Amazon, useful to the faculty and students, but it will be available to anybody anywhere in the world because it will be on the internet. And then uh, it will be a platform for the preservation of the of the traditional knowledge mm-hmm. and bring it together with the scientific knowledge and create a hybrid of the two where these two where science and folk knowledge, folk knowledge is another way of knowing, right, about nature. The two are complementary. They're not in opposition. They're complementary, mm-hmm. you know. And folk, uh, you know, indigenous people have taught us, if they've taught us nothing else, they've taught us that there are other ways to view, there's another worldview, uh, uh, you know, there are other ways of knowing than the strictly scientific reductionist way well absolutely actually the the psychedelic aspect of that and just bringing it back now to psychedelics is just from the on one hand you've got you know if you go it in in certain cultures it's about a reconnection to your ancestors and spirit and all these right things that like in 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 psychedelics in western is being looked at through that kind of scientific research mental health that different lens and, and how... And simultaneously, mm-hmm. 
And by doing that, <clears throat> neglecting the other side of it. Right. You know, the body of folk knowledge association. Yes. Right. We want to bring those things together. Well, I love that you said that too. I, I We were chatting yesterday with um, with a gentleman over at Beckley Wave, and he was just mentioning the thing that we were mentioning because they were talking about like how to create like, is there is there a standard of, you know, ways on the Western side to go about facilitating um, psychedelic information? And I was mentioning to him, I said, you know, there's so much people have been facilitating in the, the gray market, the underground for 20, 30, 40 years. There is so that is lived wisdom, actually. Yep. Yep, so they- Very different than okay, you're coming in, you've got the tools, I know you got the, the microscopes, and there's nothing wrong because it, that's going to keep moving, legitimizing, legitimizing. But there's so much legitimate, helpful knowledge. I feel like if there's a marriage of, look, but there's people that have been sitting with people on trips for years that can teach even the scientists. And then there's like just, there's so much knowledge that can be, I think this is where the sweet spot is, is somehow each voice needs to be heard yeah. within this. Yeah. So the idea is to make this a kind of synergetic thing. Right. It empowers the indigenous people to contribute, mm-hmm. to share their knowledge to the degree that they want to and mm-hmm. not share it if they don't want to, sure. and, but to make it uh, accessible to people with, you know, a variety of interests, anything that has to do with the Amazon, Amazonian flora, mm-hmm. which extends to, you know, uh, biodiversity, degradation, decimation. Uh, Verberia can be a valuable map through time and space of the changes in vegetation in a region as due to climate change, for example, and other factors. So, there, you know, the fact that these collections sometimes go back and there are collections in the herbarium there that go back to the turn of the 20th century, you sure. know? Yeah. So there's a there's a definition of the characteristics of the forest on a time axis, mm-hmm. also on a geographical axis, because mm-hmm. plants move around, plants migrate, invasive mm-hmm. species move, or other species colonize new, new areas and so on. So herbarium, properly used, can be a dynamic, vector or or hub for this type of information. People think, well, if they even know what an herbarium is, but they think, well, it's it's just a library of musty old plants, you know, I mean, dried plant specimens. What's mm-hmm. exciting about that? Right. But actually, it is exciting if you understand how the way this links into various, you know, pools of information. Well, yeah. Each plant, each herbarium specimen tells a story about itself, you know, at such a time in such a place and by whom, and sometimes that's all there is to the story, you know, that you know, but you can, but knowing that information, you can then use that as hooks to link, uh, you know, there are all kinds of databases now, biodiversity databases, genomic databases, ethnobotanical databases, and all of these natural products databases. Mm-hmm. So all of these databases can be linked into, you know, a given specimen can open the door into all these pools of information. Yeah. So then this, you know, musty old plant, which probably doesn't even look very nice, mm-hmm. you know, tropical plants are 
they don't make good herbarium specimens. They're often, you know, they just don't look good. They lack flowers and that sort of thing. The point is the collection represents, you know, is the portal to this accessory information. And that's how it tells its story. Yeah, I was thinking with with nature, you know, from so much that we understand with with nature is that so many of our medicines, for instance, have come from the Amazon, first of all, that within, with so much of the deforestation that's happening with the Amazon, it's like we have no idea if the antidote of what we need is there in the plants, that that basically that earth has I, its I've own said medicines. So many times I've said, how do you put a value on a cure for AIDS that's in a forest you cut down last week? I know. You can't quantify that. But you know it's there. You know that this is being lost. I mean, and that's, you it's know, it's and just like the understanding and the, and the connection that, like, this earth is, first of all, so magnificent and so intelligent and that for every virus and pandemic and things that are going on that you do, you really, we don't know what we're, we're just arbitrarily, and, and from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, is we only know maybe like 25% of the plant species in the Amazon. That there not is even. Not there. even. So there is so, penicillin, right, is a good example of that. That comes from. A fungus, actually. A fungus. <laughs> I mean, whole, what, yeah. what, what that did for giving an antibiotic for the first time, I mean, that is such a game changer. And like what we're going to need, and I think just that, bringing people back down to it's not just like, oh, nature, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I was like, no, quite literally, it could be life-saving. We don't understand that nature, you know, number one, that, uh, you know, I, that nature is in control and mm-hmm. nature is pissed off, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and we need to seriously get our act together, you know, and this project that we're doing is, you know, it's not going to save the Amazon, but if there's enough collective efforts like that, eventually, I mean, it's not about saving the Amazon anymore. It's probably too late for that, but you can slow down. Yeah. And, you know, biomes, ecologies, ecosystems, they evolve, they change, you know, because of the climate changes happening in the Amazon. It, it may look like a grassland in 50 years. Oh, thank God. I mean, the Amazon is worth far more. There have been studies that show it's worth far more untouched, you know, undeforested. You don't clear it and put in palm oil plantations. You know, you leave what's there in place. What you can harvest out of an undisturbed ecosystem, just in terms of non-timber forest products is the term, greatly exceeds what you can get from timber or cattle or oil palms or soybeans or all the things that they, you know, they cut down this biodiversity and then they put these monocrops in right. and, and, you know, but it's discouraging because I don't see that, uh, you know, we're, we're not waking up fast enough okay. is the problem. Well, why don't we end on an optimistic note though? What are you excited about when you see the psychedelic space? What, what where is that? Where do you see hope? Well, I see hope that these things are finally being recognized yeah. after being vilified and condemned and all of that for so long. I mean, we're finally beginning to realize what indigenous people have always known and always been telling us, you know, hey, these things have value, Yeah. you know, but for a long time, medicine was not open to them. And so I'm, I'm glad to see the attitudes are changing. Yeah. 
I mean, I think the the mental health care, the 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 psychotherapy of the future, you know, and I mean, it's, and the future is here. The psychotherapy that incorporates psychedelics is going to look a lot like shamanism. It's going to look like traditional practices because they, you know, they are the ones that uh, have worked with these plants and long enough that they. Uh, you know, they, they know how to organize set and setting appropriately and that sort of thing. So, you know, what I would like to see in the therapeutic sense is a kind of a hybrid between yeah. psychotherapy and and traditional shamanism, but with more of that than the psychotherapy part. I think psychotherapists, if they want to work with psychedelics, uh, should study shamanism. Yeah. Not necessarily become shaman, sure. but at least yeah. understand that approach and and, you know, there's an important, uh, you know, elements like ritual and song and sound immersion and that sort of thing can be brought forth and, and the uh, therapeutic practices, protocols are a lot richer. One thing that I was reflecting last night, the one thing that seems different from, say, the 60s is, and to me it's very encouraging, this is actually a global phenomenon, yeah. you know. The species is waking up to these medicines, and they're not waiting around for governments to mm. come along and create the regulatory framework. People are just, <laughs> there's eleven thousand people here that have not waited. Yeah, yeah, there's that. Have <laughs> you know, there's, we haven't waited. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know, we should assert we should yeah. assert our right to symbiosis. Totally. You know, this has become a trope of mine lately. That like that. We no. not just a human right, an organismic right. Yeah. You know, and uh, we're talking about like fungus and mushrooms and plants that grow from the ground. They're like, not those. Uh, uh, and you're like, wait, what? No, what? It is a plant. I think I can. Yeah, Sorry. it's completely absurd. It is isn't absurd. It? The yeah. fact that you can, like, there's a mushroom growing from the ground, you have to, like, low key. I remember Paul Stamets, like, talking about how he had to, like, low key by the cops, like, pull mushrooms from the ground. I'm like, stop, you guys. That is absurd. This is just growing outside your office but then if we if we look at conservatism they people want to interfere with all aspects of our biology you know they, they're basically absolutely anti-biology yeah so if it has to do with sex drugs or rock and roll <laughs> we're yeah. in it <laughs> oh totally totally well let's just end it on that dennis all right i hope you enjoyed that quick little interview with dennis mckenna how interesting was it when he was talking about how we might just be arbitrarily cutting down the rainforest and basically taking away a major cure of something that we need? Jumping right into the next one, I'm with Maria Bellet. Maria Bellet is a computational neuroscientist at Imperial College. She focuses on neurodegeneration, sleep, and recreational drug use. Basically, she's studying people under the use of psychedelics. Check it out. Thank you so much for being here and chatting with us on Trip on This. For people that are brand new to you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about what type of research that you're doing right now? Sure. I'm a computational neuroscientist. I work at Imperial College in London. And my work mainly looks at how cognitive ability differs in people who either have neurological conditions, psychiatric conditions, or who use drugs such as psychedelics. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And so what really pulled you into that kind of work? Like what, what's the passion behind it? Well, it's kind of a long story, but it all started when I was a first year student in university. 
And I started becoming very interested in whether we can change the brain function mm -hmm. as we know it, especially yeah. when it goes wrong in different pathologies. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started looking for various research labs that were at my university, that was University of Birmingham where I did my degree. And I found this particular research lab that was doing experiments with ketamine, trying to alter the memories of rat models of PTSD and addiction. Mm -hmm. And those experiments were actually quite successful because yeah. it seemed that after using these drugs in a specific paradigm, they were no longer displaying the same signs of fear or the same signs of addiction. So I was very interested in that and decided that I would like to carry on working on this type of narrative, but in human subjects. Is that what you've been seeing now in your research? What are some of the things that you're seeing in your own particular research like is that are, are you seeing that yourself in what you're so studying it's actually a very complex question yeah because I do not do interventional studies at the moment so I do not try the same paradigms that we are able to use in rat models okay, in humans right, right. and then looking at the brain dissections to see what's going on but one of the things that I've been looking at recently for example is whether there is any association between certain patterns of recreational drug use, mm -hmm. patterns of using psychedelics, mm -hmm. alone or in combination with other substances as well, that might be associated with different cognitive processes being different in those individuals than to those who never took drugs in their lifetime. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so now for people, let's assume now everyone's like, woo, uh, that they're, they know nothing about neuroscience, right? right? Let's have a quick neuron, neur neuron 101. <laughs> what is happening right now for us in the brain? And what then happens when we introduce a psychedelic into it? Right. Well, the brain is a complex system. It's mm -hmm. a dynamic system. A lot of things are happening all at once. It's not just one particular area working at any one time. It's more the combination of different signals, uh, excitatory and inhibitory, that gives rise to our conscious experience, right? Mm -hmm. But there are ways to perturb that. And particularly drugs are one of the most interesting ways mm -hmm. of perturbing that. So what happens when a drug comes into the brain and perturbs the system, such as with psychedelics, is that a lot of the processes and functioning of day-to-day -day that we're normally used to changes. And that includes perception changes, mm -hmm. so people might start uh, experiencing their visual field looking differently, mm -hmm. their cognitive ability changes, mm -hmm. which is something that I'm particularly interested in, so their attention functions differently, their memory functions differently, the way that they use language, the way that they engage in problem solving, all of these abilities change as a result of taking psychedelics. And uh, what we believe is underlying all of these changes are changes in um, neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. uh, receptors in the brain being modulated, and then this uh, chemical pool that's normally organizing day-to-day -day experiences being different, and also the brain network activity. So there are a lot of different layers mm -hmm. that are underlying uh, the experience. When you are seeing, so you're you're seeing that all these different cognitive functions are are happening. What are some of the ones that you're seeing that's very promising, for instance, where you're like, is memory getting better, for instance, or are we able to problem solve better? Like, what are, what are you actually so seeing? So it's a very interesting question, right? Because what I am seeing is that it changes from stage to stage mm -hmm. in someone's trip and then in the afterglow. Oh, okay. So in, in different duration. Right, exactly. Okay. So one of the papers that I've published last year, for example, mm -hmm. looked at the changes that are happening in the acute state, so while a person is under the influence. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of these abilities actually get impaired. So for example, attention is impaired, memory is in term, short-term memory. Mm -hmm. But then there are other functions that are enhanced. 
So language function, for example, seems to be enhanced. People are much more able to make associations between words in ways that they've never done it oh, before. Yep, yep. So a lot of creative um, metaphors are being external. Is that a cute state? Yeah. Um, one of, but one of the interesting questions is like, whether those changes that are happening in the acute state actually last for a longer time. Mm. And there's evidence from the work of some of my colleagues that the afterglow stage might be presenting with some opportunity for a novel creative insight. Oh. But it's not something that we are truly, truly sure at the moment that applies to everyone in all contexts. And it's obviously those dependent set and setting to totally. and so forth. There's a lot of little variable. Yeah, I mean, minor inmates. The, the brain, I imagine, as a science, has to be probably one of the most difficult to study because every single brain is different. Unlike exactly. the human genome, that's exactly. like, okay, we all have the same chronotype, like the same makeup. It's, no, we're talking about a completely different mattering exactly. every single brain. And it's not just the brain, it's the psychology of young person that's yeah. interplaying here as well because people have different ways of thinking that are inspired by their personal experiences yeah. as well. It's not only uh, brain networks and yeah, like, yeah, balance, yeah. right? Obviously, that's a component, but um, th that it, this is intertwined with the psychological um, basis of that individual. I can imagine that just it's forever exciting to be in work like this because there's just, there's the newness of discovery is just always present. Absolutely. I, just to reflect language for me, I was mentioning to her when I, um, when I sometimes like trip, I can, my ability to communicate and speak and express myself is so heightened. I used to wanted like a joke <laughs> that I would be like, I'm gonna do my podcast like trip and I'm like, all right, I can't be like tripping for every podcast, obviously. But, <laughs> um, but, but that I actually just, you know, anecdotally, it, it taught me how to still be expressive in the way that I speak once the trip was done because I got to see the way in which I could communicate and I was like, oh, I'm capable of that. And therefore I can bring that now into my day to day. And that's just a practice and awareness. Yeah. Maybe yeah, that's the integration piece of course. Quite. It, this is a very interesting observation because mm -hmm. this is precisely the kind of changes that I'm interested in looking yeah. at at the moment. Is there something that people take from the trip and that changes their patterns of thinking? Do they work towards, they train their brain in new ways? Or is it something simply biological mm -hmm. that the drugs are doing mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. and then the brain just ends up functioning differently? Have you seen, obviously there's this mystical component that happens, yeah. right? A lot of people report that they have mystical experiences under the influence of the psychedelics mm -hmm. or prolonged mystical-like attitudes afterwards. Yeah. And, and, and what are you seeing that shift? Um, what does that mean for their life ultimately? Is the, are they able to report like, okay, so you've had this mystical experience, now what? Well, that's a very good question. Yeah. I think this comes down a lot to integrating these insights that people experience during a trip. There's a lot of talk at the moment about the fact that it doesn't start and end with the trip. Yeah. There's like a lifelong journey where people process the this, uh, different experiences that they have during psychedelics, right? Mm -hmm. Mystical experiences are actually one of the most challenging bits to study for scientists. Of course. I think. And there's so the nature there's, of even what you're trying to say about it. You're like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> but there's research to show that these mystical experiences are stronger than what people experience in religious settings, for example. Mm -hmm. So the psychedelics are basically able to put individuals in a state that's unparalleled by any other way of experiencing something of mystical nature, right? So to take this forward and like what it means for like how it changes people's lives, 
I think this is a very open-ended question. Yeah. And the reason for that is because the nature of um, the mystical part of life and of the human experience is so individual mm-hmm. to each person, right? What is true to someone might not be to someone else. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to individuals to take the path that most resonates with them, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't think there's a universal truth. No, no. And yeah. the thing is, is, is Joan and I were talking about this too, is just, it, I always call it like the sleeper in like psychedelics, <laughs> is the thing is that whatever, whatever you want to call it, the places that we go to in that state, for me, um, it was like the bringing me back to myself, my fullest potential, the, the extraordinary power that I actually hold within myself, like mm-hmm. really like allowing that, um, you know, for me, it is that, yeah. yeah. And that is for me, that is like a divine, my divine connection to myself though, ultimately it's mm-hmm. instead of like a, a religious construct. And yeah. I think so many people are, however they want to call the, the experience, there is something bigger happening for so many people. They're just like, I don't know. And then the brain, of course, wants to label it and like try to. Yeah, exactly. And this is the link between what's neurobiologically happening and then how people choose to interpret that and to orchestrate their lives yeah. around it yeah. and how psychology interplays here. Yeah. Because I think that us as humans do definitely have this strong need for feeling part of something bigger mm-hmm. and psychedelics definitely tap into that it's that's why they have been regarded as one of the answers to the crisis of meaning for example yeah. people do not really find meaningful reasons for carrying on with their lives and then they have a psychedelic experience they feel recentered with something bigger than themselves you are answering the question about the skeptics right now because <laughs> i was going to say what would you say to the skeptics around psychedelics i think it's good to listen to the skeptics yeah. first of all and yeah. then reply to specifically what their questions are there's a lot of skepticism that has roots into simply a need for having stronger evidence mm-hmm. and i totally resonate with that as yeah, a scientist, of course. Yeah. as a scientist i think Hearing criticisms about one's work, it's ultimately about making it better. Mm-hmm. Because if they are skeptics, there's clearly certain uh, cracks in yes. a narrative. Yes, right? yeah. And that needs to be addressed. The, uh, the only way to truly meaningfully move forward is to address what those are. Mm-hmm. Was it like that the skeptic was wrong? Yeah. Or was it that they were right and then like there was a blind spot in the person who's proposing something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That's what I would uh, what I would say to the skeptics is I would like to hear what they have to say first yeah. because you know they might be right they might be wrong but yeah it's good to engage to all of the sides of the conversation mm-hmm. and and look there's so many different lenses that a skeptic can come at it's exactly. like is it really the answer is it really going to be all exactly. these things exactly. I think though the idea of just giving meaning back and just seeing that at least from a research side of things people being like Again, like Anna Julie, that's exactly, I went into my psychedelic experience being like, is this it? Like, that's where I was at in life. Like, is this all we do? We go to work and I maybe live for the weekend, have some peak moments and like, that's what we're doing here. And then the reconnection to just like the straight up gratitude of like getting to breathe is, yeah. Uh, it's it just like re, it was just like a reminder, like, oh, isn't it great to be alive? And I was like, oh, 
Totally. Yeah. Isn't it great to like have to do the laundry even though like you don't want to, (laughs) but like it's still an opportunity to like presence in the moment. moment. That seems to be what psychedelics are really hinting at. Yeah. Right. Um, I like to come back. There's this quote from uh, Rowan Griffiths. Mm -hmm. who's actually talking about some of these aspects of the psychedelic experience. And why is it that people might experience the mystical and uh, he was talking about simply the awareness of awareness as mm. being a component of this. <laughs> Suddenly someone stops whatever they're doing um, because of being under the influence of the drug. And they notice that they simply have this capacity of having awareness of their surroundings, of their breath, yeah. what is going yeah. on. And they wonder, well, why? Yeah, where were they <laughs> before? No, but there are, no, there's no answer to that. Why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are we alive? Why are we, yeah, yeah, this? Yeah. Why are we having this interview? Yeah, totally, you know? totally. It's part of the human experience that yeah. really fundamentally at the core doesn't have one of these very deep answers. Yeah, that yeah, it is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And psychedelics put you face to face with that. Yeah. So yeah. my final question for you <laughs> is, is what excites you the most? about the work you're doing and, and the psychedelic movement that you're seeing? Oh, well, I think the potential of having access to something that might be able to push us as humans forward mm-hmm. beyond our biology even. Mm-hmm. Because if we can change the way that our brain works for real, mm-hmm. then that's very strong. It's a very strong step forward. Mm-hmm. in where humanity is heading in the evolution of our species. Yeah. And can we do it in a targeted, controlled manner? Yeah. Or is it spontaneous? What is going on? Yeah. I think these are the questions and the paths that excite me the most. When it comes to the movement, well, you know, everyone's welcome. Yes, yeah. that's what I'm going to say. <laughs> I love to see how it's going to unfold. <laughs> yeah, we're all part of the human experience yeah. like we're saying. Let's just see how it goes. Let's just see how it goes. Also, <laughs> yeah. Maria, thank you so much for all that great information. Isn't this cool how all of the different conversations are just completely different ranges and sectors of the whole psychedelic space? Next up, we have Daniel Love. Daniel is the co-founder and partner of Beckley Waves. Beckley Waves is a psychedelic fund and incubator for emerging leaders, entrepreneurs, and partnerships in this psychedelic space. Daniel particularly leads investment strategy, new partnerships, business incubation, and talent development. Here's what he has to say. Is part of your role then to speak to some of these investors to help them see that this is a, a worthwhile investment because of what, it, of what the potential is? And can you speak to what the potential that you feel of psychedelics are? You know, it's the pretty big picture in terms of mental health solutions that past 30 years. That's a size maybe 30 years ago, and since then, it was just in this kind of huge hole in terms of new solutions to help people. Uh, I think it's increasingly clear that, you know, I would say a mix of new and very, very old evidence, right, that psychedelics have a critical role to play. Yeah. Uh, and we can kind of no longer ignore that. And so, again, I think there's um, the years of history, but also a lot of research. Right now, you have something like 200 clinical trials underway mm-hmm. in the U.S., and that's amazing. I mean, that's yeah. a huge shift. A couple, you know, five years ago, it was probably a handle. And so I think to a certain extent, the genie's out of the bottle and that people understand that this is a tool that can be helpful um, and, and that's a good important area. Yeah. In terms of accessibility, is insurance a potential? I hope so. I, I don't know. I think, it's, I think it's probably a longer term play and so I think it's interesting because there's kind of different ways of looking at it. 
The reality is in the U.S., it's following a largely medicalized pathway. The extent to which the, the work actually that, that MAPS encompassed did to get a CPT code as a nation was actually critical. As that, I think, helps unlock a pathway where I think where you get reimbursement. And to me, you know, I think there's obviously lots and lots of challenges with our health health insurance system. Yeah. However, that unlocks access in a big way for a lot of people. But also, I think simultaneously, we should look at alternative models. Yeah. So we started talking about Becky Retreats, which is booking legal retreats in Jamaica and Netherlands. A part of that's because that's what we feel legally confident about doing the work we're doing. So within Becky Retreats, we have a number of them. We have a partnership with Heroic Hearts. Mm -hmm. We're bringing yeah, yeah. Mark the CEO of that business to yeah. himself. Yeah, Jesse. Um, and we're bringing Heroic Hearts down. Mm -hmm. We have other kind of scholarship programs as well. Great. Then within Beckley Academy, which is the training business, we also have a, a scholarship program as well for people who, who uh, need financial assistance and, and think about how to recruit and ensure that we have a diverse group going yeah. to the, the cohort because I think, you know, we're going to need a, a wide-ranging group of viewpoints and then therefore therapists so that this is accessible and relatable to folks from all kinds of backgrounds and walks of life. So I think we're I'm trying to cautiously think about those but allowing the kind of specific projects to focus on what they do best anyway. What can people be, there is a lot of legislation coming now. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of voter, voter initiatives, right? What do you think people should be looking up for when they are young voting? Like, is this right for me? Is this right for my city and state? But one important distinction is there's a difference between decriminalization and legalization. Sure, so fake difference. You know, someone like us can't actually, we don't feel we're comfortable operating in Oregon or, or Colorado, unfortunately, because it's still federally. And so- oh, Interesting, okay. We are, but what I think is a good thing from a kind of policy perspective is that, you know, we want to have different models and kind of see what works. So, yep. you know, one of the things that's interesting I think about Oregon is they decided, you know, this has to take place in a sector. Even, so somewhere where you actually have to go and, and it's kind of administered there. I think there's, there's good reasons and, and safety kind of features on that. Sure. In Colorado, that's not necessarily the case. You just have to be someone that is kind of a, a certified provider, but it can still take place in the home. And so I think, you know, there was critiques about that from kind of a safety perspective, but it actually makes it much more accessible in some ways because in, in Oregon, people are trying to understand, you know, right price point, and it's just, it's very expensive, right? If you think about the cost of a therapist, Paying a couple hundred dollars an hour meet for a six-hour session, you know, it becomes very expensive, very fast. Yeah, and so I don't know what the right answer is. I think having a couple different, like, well thought out experiments and seeing what's actually working is probably a good way to go. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I believe I should say very reference to all our investors. If there's a decision between mission and margin, we're going to choose mission. There's other areas, but at the same time, you know, if we want to create a sustainable industry, we need to find ways that work. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thank you for taking time to and to you. I love that you uh, frame with us like, how do we be support people? All right. I hope you all enjoyed that last interview. My next guest is Angela Albee. Angela is the Oregon Psilocybin Services Section Manager at the Oregon Health Authority and has played a major role in pushing forward Measure 109, which is the Oregon Psilocybin Act. So now this conversation is about one of the legal psilocybin frameworks here in the U.S. Let's hear what Angela had to say. So for everybody that's watching, it's really for the psychedelic curious, right? So people that are like, just, they're like, what's this all about? Why are there 11,000 people here? Why does everyone care about this? <laughs> and now for someone like yourself, where we are now in a, we're talking about a state that has legal psilocybin, and you're part of the implementation of it, I'd love for you to start there, introduce yourself and the kind of work you're doing right now in Oregon. Sounds great. Well, 
Thank you, first of all, for inviting me to talk with you. My name is Angie Albee, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm the section manager for the Oregon Psilocybin Services section. Um, we were created after Ballot Measure 109, the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act was passed by Oregon voters in 2020. And we're housed within the Oregon Health Authority Public Health Division Center for Health Protection. Oh, wow. Um, so to begin, um, our role is to implement and be responsible for the ongoing administration of Ballot Measure 109. Mm -hmm. It's now codified in Oregon law. So sometimes I refer to this as Measure 109, the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act, or its legal statutory reference, ORS 475A. Okay. Okay. And what it does is it's a legalized framework for people that want to access psilocybin services. So it creates licensing for four license types, and I'll explain those in a little bit, and a regulatory oversight over those licensees. There's a lot within the framework that I could talk about, but I'll keep it very high level. Yeah, yeah. And first, I think I'll define what is psilocybin services for yeah. those folks that don't know what that means um, in Oregon. Psilocybin services is comprised of three different components. So there's the preparation session. A licensed facilitator will meet with a client and do a process of going through and, and asking questions. Um, a client will provide information. They'll talk about informed consent, a client bill of rights, uh, safety and support planning, transportation planning, okay. so much more. Yeah. Um, and really get to know, first of all, is a licensed facilitator comfortable providing psilocybin services to this client? Mm -hmm. And second of all, is the client still interested in moving forward? Mm -hmm. What moving forward means is scheduling an administration session at a licensed service center. And so you're getting a vibe check? Yes. Okay. Yes. Got it. Yes. So that on both sides. Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. In our rules, we wanted to be sure the licensed facilitators could at any reason say, I'm sorry, I just can't provide psilocybin services to you. Um, and we didn't want that liability to be on their shoulders of being forced, forced. to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, moving forward in under the Oregon model, it's not a dispensary model. You don't just go in, you know, purchase psilocybin and take it off site with you. So when I say moving forward after the preparation session, that's the part two of psilocybin okay. services. That's meeting a licensed facilitator at a licensed service center where the client purchases psilocybin products from the service center. And then the licensed facilitator will support the client in a non-directive way. Okay. While they have a psilocybin experience. Okay. And is there like, even from the, even from the consumption aspect, or are they having it straight up? Is it me as a T? Do you standardize that? Yes, so there's so many rules, 90 pages. I don't know how of course. <laughs> you want to read it, it's on our website. But uh, first of all, we there are over 200 species of psilocybin-producing mushrooms um, that grow naturally around the world. And so we're focused on one to begin with, and that's psilocybe cubensis. Yes. Um, our advisory board made a recommendation to start there and start conservatively with a species that there was a lot more information around yeah. for safety. And what about within the distinct types? I mean, obviously there's a ton of different, like golden teachers and a lot of penis envies. And isn't mm -hmm. like, is, is that as specific or you guys have a little leeway in terms of the the growing? We process? kept it very open. That's so good. one species, Psilocybe cubensis, and then whatever fits whatever, under that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There is some testing requirement for products, which I can talk about in a moment, but 
um, administra- licensed service centers can look offer very different services. So um, environments, I should say. So if someone wants to offer an outdoor administration area, a client could consume psilocybin and go outside and put their feet in the grass or lay in the grass or be next to the trees. Um, Or it could be a smaller, more boutique lake setting um, where they go into smaller spaces. Um, They could offer group administration sessions if they have enough space and they could offer both group administration sessions and one-on-ones. Okay. It's really up to the licensed service center about what operational practice they're going What size um, group, is there a group limit? So there is a group limit of 25 clients well, in an so, group administration session. You can almost have a retreat. Yes, and... <laughs> Basically. <laughs> yes, and a licensed service center, if it's large enough, could have multiple spaces, administration areas. So you could serve no more than 100 clients at a time at a licensed service center, but 25 clients um, per, you know, per client administration area mm-hmm. for group administration. There's something else. Is it usually one facilitator to 25? You were just getting, you okay. my Okay. Um, so under our rules, licensed facilitators, um, first of all, they have to support clients through their experience for a minimal duration of time. So based on the dosage that you consume, if you're a client, um, you'll consume that amount. And then you have to stay at the service center for that minimal period of time. Mm-hmm. But if you're still feeling the effects, there's a release process. And so you're not allowed to to really go until you as a client feel comfortable and your licensed facilitator feels comfortable releasing you. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very much a process of collaboration in that experience. Um, and once you meet that minimal requirement, if you're not feeling the effects, then you can go. But you have you you have to have a transportation plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like so, you no matter even if you even if you're feeling like I feel fine, they're like no way. Like yeah, right. Okay, I love that. How many people have you? Um, I know it's new. Yes. So. How many people have gone through this process? Well, I'll get to that in one moment. Okay, but yeah, I want to just mention that there's also mm-hmm. client facilitator ratios because you had asked if yes, it's just yes, one facilitator. Yes, yes, yes. So um, I was going to say one to 25 feels. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be like, oh, okay. So it happens if like a couple of people are having a tough time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, and there's an opportunity in our rules. First yeah. of all, there's client facilitator ratios. It's dependent on dosage as well. Okay. So if you take a subperceptual dose, a very low amount, mm-hmm. you're not going to need as many right. facilitators unless, you know, unless someone's taking a, a larger, higher dose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to mention that. I also wanted to mention that after that administration session, a licensed facilitator checks in with a client within 72 hours of the session mm-hmm. and also then offers optional integration sessions. And those can be opportunities to talk about safety and support planning, mm-hmm. to be referred to community networks, peer support networks, other services, and just make sure the client feels really supported. Is that part of the package? Is that an add-on? Is that like, is, you know what I'm saying? Is it a, yeah. an additional cost for therapy or is that part of the package? Well, you just brought up a really interesting <laughs> question. Um, so we're unable to set or regulate the cost of psilocybin products or services. So mm-hmm. um, someone, a service center could decide to offer a package of psilocybin services that includes preparation, administration, and integration. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in our rules that prohibits them from doing that. And they also can, you know, sort of price each one of those okay. sessions. Um, that's really, again, outside of our- uh, Okay, so you guys, the co- because uh, let's, we'll, we'll bring up the elephant in the room yes. is around the price right now of, and I understand it, you know, because from what I understand to become a certified facilitator, 
it's pricey yeah. and it's got a price tag to it. And so how do you address, and I know this is, I get, well, I'm sure this comes up. How do you address the accessibility aspect of this? We're talking about what, 2,500 potentially for a psilocybin journey. That's going to price a lot of people out, obviously. Yeah. How are you, what would you say to it? Yeah. Well, I think that accessibility and equity considerations are everyone's responsibility. If this is going to be a success, yeah. then at every point we're all, uh, we all have a responsibility to ensure that that is something we're focused on. Um, in our rulemaking process, first of all, we adopted over 90 pages of rules and those rules really um, offer opportunities for accessibility um, concerns. So. Like you can have a client support person be present with you if you have toileting, mobility, mm -hmm. assistive devices, or interpretation needs. Mm -hmm. And so there is some accessibility considered there. Um, the equity considerations, um, we were unable to prioritize certain populations and communities. So what we've done is we've required each of our licensees to submit a social equity plan mm -hmm. um, to really address that they understand systemic oppression and talk about how they're going to help provide social equity in their business model. Yeah. Um, that was a recommendation of our Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board yeah. and its equity subcommittee. And um, it's a place to begin. The other thing is that Measure 109 did not include funds um, to help subsidize the cost of services. Right. It also didn't uh, provide funds to help licensees apply or afford their licenses or for people that wanted to take training programs to be able to pay for those. So we have an issue with affordability, as you mentioned, and I think it's just really important for all of us to consider the ways that we can create more you know, equity and access um, and really think about resources that we need to do that. Yeah. Um, my hope is that someday there are uh, there's an additional equity and access fund yeah, like that can help some kind. subsidize yeah. cost of services or provide sliding scales. Um, many licensees are trying to do that in their social equity plans, um, but they are looking for ways to um, have the resources to implement those. Okay. I think it's going to all have to work itself yes. out. And what's interesting is right next to 109 is 110, right? Which is all the decriminalization that's happened. And so the other probably conversation that's happening is now you got a big probably like gray market that's already in portland how am i like wanting to phrase this basically like you've got the this unregulated maybe more risky but more affordable ways potentially right bumping up right against yeah. some of the legal stuff and is it just right now for people that are like rather know that they're set and you're just focused on like more of a case study at this point where it's like get people in it's working, it's working, and then start to build out those programs and build more of a case to just be like, go above ground, do it properly, make sure you're held, make sure you're set. You know, this is a really important conversation and there's no one answer to this. Um, the conversation around psilocybin didn't just begin with the passage of Measure 109 mm -hmm. in Oregon. Um, there are so many communities that for thousands of years have carried knowledge and wisdom yeah. of the practice. And, there's so much robust knowledge in the unregulated space already. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, ones that have been doing it. Right. They got all that lived data. Yes, very much so. And so we understand that when you draw a line around something in a space that's existed for thousands of years and say, okay, this is legal and what's outside of this line is not, there's a severing of a practice that occurs and people have to determine, you know, am I going to stay in the unregulated space? Do I have the means to, you know, 
sort of try to be licensed and work within the regulatory framework. Mm -hmm. That's challenging when there's no resources available to help support folks. Yeah. Um, I think one of the one of the issues is we have a responsibility at the Oregon Health Authority to educate communities mm -hmm. so that they understand the risks associated with psilocybin, the potential benefits, um, as well as understanding the risks of this is the legalized framework and whatever's outside of that is not, mm -hmm. just so that people understand, um, you know, many people think, okay, well, Measure 109 passed, so psilocybin's legal, and I won't get in trouble if I have any on me or if I go to, you know, access services in the unregulated space. And so um, whatever people do, we want them to make an informed decision yeah. and have access to information, yeah. which is yeah. a big priority for us. Um, yeah. Education above, yeah. above all else, like stay well, stay healthy, know who you're going to do your research ultimately. It's yeah. so big. I'm, I'd be so curious to end it actually like on a more personal note about how, what psilocybin particularly obviously has been for you and uh, what drew you to this space and the work that you're doing right now? Yeah, well, it's funny how life uh, brings you back around, mm -hmm. so to speak. So I've been familiar with uh, psychedelics for over 25 years. Um, I worked closely on understanding uh, the role of women in the beat generation. And, um, you know, really psychedelics were such an incredible part of the beat generation. And um, so that was where my exposure began. Um, also, I my dad is a Vietnam veteran, so um, understanding conflict and what you know trauma does to individuals and to families has always been something that has made me curious to find: is there are there other ways to heal, you know, our communities um, when certain methodologies or models don't work for them? So um, I was already working um, as a senior policy advisor with the Oregon Health Authority, and then saw this opportunity and you know, just really understood that it's going to take someone that understands the complex history of psilocybin, both the thousands of years and the the research on all of the contributions of so many people and understanding that, you know, we're starting in a new space, but we have a lot of work to do to evolve, to learn and to collaborate together. And so the hope is, is that all of these different models, whether it's medical, clinical, and a non-medical or clinical model like Measure 109, whatever is happening in this nation and across the world really um, that we're able to learn from each other and help support um, learning and, and sharing information yeah. and that the more models that are there uh, mean more access. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're at, the, at the very core, we're just talking about how to better lives. Yeah. Right? Like we want everybody to feel okay about like waking up every day, like cool. Yeah. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add for those listening about either psychedelics, the movement, what you're excited about, Oregon, whatever. Well, there's so much to say, and I could speak for hours about the things <laughs> I'm excited about and that I want people to know about. I will say that um, there is an incredible uh, fact sheet on our website that is available in English, Spanish, and American Sign Language. Mm -hmm. We also have a training video about the basics of Measure 109. So if you visit the website, um, you know, if you go, you can Google Oregon Psilocybin Services. Um, you'll see the Oregon Health Authority Prevention and Wellness website. Um, I can provide it to you as well. Please visit the website. Um, there's a lot of ways to engage, and we want to hear from everyone. Um, I also just want to say in closing that um, it's really important that we implement this with a lot of intention. Um, Oregon has worked closely with communities to co-create a state health improvement plan. It's called Healthier Together Oregon. 
we're tying all of our work to Healthier Together Oregon. And what that is, is really priorities of community, addressing institutional bias, addressing toxic stress, trauma, and adversity, mm -hmm. addressing economic drivers of health, access to preventative, equitable you know, health services yeah. um, and, and much more. So we're really doing program evaluation while we're building this work. Right. Because you have to have to, those things have to be addressed because that's part of the reason why that we go to psilocybin and things like this is because of all of those areas that we need to address in our life. Stress obviously being like a giant one. Right. For a lot of us, like don't know how to unwind our super unregulated nervous systems. And yeah. so, yeah, super cool. Thank you so much, Angela. Yeah. Angie, is that what you go back? All right. Again, the wealth of information from all of these incredible men and women just was such a treat for me to talk to. It really was. And I just loved how I got so many different areas of the psychedelic space. But it wouldn't be psychedelics if we didn't talk about the community. Community is everything when it comes to your psychedelic use. Because let's be honest, when we start taking psychedelics, we start to change. And oftentimes we change in ways that the people around us may not always be familiar with. They might not know what's going on with us all the time. And so having other people to who have experienced uh, psychedelics and know what it's like is important. And so this leads me to the final interview of this MAPS piece, Mount Mushmore. I'm with Stephanie Carzone Abrams and Joey Spanders, the co-founders of Mount Mushmore, a mushroom community focused around culinary experiences, education, and bringing like-minded souls together to talk, eat, and expand. Let's hear what they had to say. Well, we're here with Steph and Joey from Mount Mushmore. Hi. It is such a beautiful Hi. event that we're doing here in Denver. And I was trying to explain to her like what I, how Mount Mushmore is to me, and like what, what the mission, what the goal is. But having the now founders here, what is for you guys the point of Mount Mushmore, the community, and what are you trying, what's the future of this for you? At a basic level, we want to feed mushrooms to everyone around the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we focus on the gourmet and functional ones. So uh, one thing that Steph and I talk about at, at Mount Mushmore is that we believe we can take mushrooms to higher elevations. And that's personally, but also for the mushrooms as well. So the reason why we focus around food is because, you know, can really show people different ways that they can enjoy and integrate mushrooms into their life. Culinary versatility. Culinary versatility. And creativity. Exactly. <laughs> but it also is, is what, what's interesting that happens is the, these chefs, we give them a blank canvas and say, hey, make whatever you want, just as long as mushrooms are the main character. So sometimes, you know, Steph and I, one of our favorite parts of our job is like we don't know what the menu is going to be till oh, we see it cool. for the first time. Yeah, it is fun. And so we're just as excited. Although, although has it ever been like they, you're they're like surprised and you're like, mm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> for the most part, we've been blessed with amazing creative people who align really well with yeah. like the vision and they understand but like we also like participating in the creation of that menu where oh, we'll go cool. in and we'll be like okay let's maybe change this let's like add this oh, okay, okay. but you know they put it together for the most part and it becomes a little bit of a team effort yeah but it, it did it varies you know like Donna today yeah. like she just like she just had all these amazing ideas and <laughs> there was barely anything that we had to no we, just said we needed more food we said two more courses and everything else was just perfect wow yeah. Yeah. that's nice well, I would say early early on sometimes um, what has happened is that we uh, 
we talk about a mushroom dinner. So they took it, interpreted it a little, a little too literally. So that was, that was the only thing, first time I think we really had like just, it was just a mushroom, ton mushroom. of mushrooms. Like yeah. everything oh, yeah, out the wazoo. It's like, okay, wait, wait. Like this is mushroom focused, not yeah. only like, mushroom. Like add a little truffle in, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but, like make a dish. Yeah. I, when the, the that one was in, fun too. To that see was really like, fun too. It was, it was kind of funny. Yeah. 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 So mushrooms as a whole. Now, where does psychedelics for you guys as a brand come in? You mm -hmm. know, like, is that an understated, underlying piece of Mount Mushmore and bring community together? Yeah. So, uh, you know, what we're aiming to do is be extremely inclusive, right? Yeah. And so having the culinary and the functional kind of be the umbrella yeah. welcomes everyone and people who have dedicated their lives to fungi, people who are curious, who don't know where to start, but psychedelics is a big part of it. There's a whole movement right now that's redefining how we take care of people on this planet, how we are treating diseases that impact all of us, right? And so we want to integrate this research and this information. We want to be a hub for education so people can come here, ask questions and learn something. Mm. And so we, we chose mushrooms because the spectrum is so wide and so vast. Mm. You know, we have the psychedelic research, we have the culinary, we have the functional, and there are benefits across that entire spectrum. And so it's inclusive of all of it. And because it's so versatile, that's why we've chosen mushrooms. Well, yeah. I would actually maybe change that statement. The mushrooms chose us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, a large part of my work is in the psychedelic and the medical clinical field. And so it's important to me and I want to be able to share that education with people. I want to bring in um, experts. I want to bring in uh, people who are working on legislation and regulation and research. And I want them to also be able to share. Uh, there's so many questions right now going on there's also a lot of misinformation so if we can be a trusted source yeah. you know I think we've we've definitely achieved something and absolutely uh, yeah have you have you done more uh, where some of the speakers some of the panelists are actually speaking to psychedelics but more front I've noticed it's your the focus right now has been on functional has been on you're teamed up with function who are mm -hmm. dope and mm -hmm. they're awesome um, have you thought about curating or have you even curated a more openly psychedelic yeah. experience yeah I mean without it without it being dosed I right, wanted right, to right. say right well I would say you know Courtney, yeah Courtney, Courtney Barnes on. was great she mm -hmm. actually came and she spoke uh, about the where we are from a legalization standpoint mm. and how that process works and it's just it's just good for people to know that it's good for us to have sort of a status update on that now when it comes to our dinners like the main format is this dinner about 15 minutes of education and as you can probably hear in the background some great music we do have plans we do have plans to integrate more psychedelic mm -hmm. talks yeah um, uh, I think we've been building out for a year Joey yeah. calls it our test kitchen Right? Yeah. And so we've been, you know, refining the concept, yeah. seeing who's interesting, seeing uh, interested, seeing who's, you know, coming in and participating. Mm -hmm. And I think like now we're really planning out, you know, the next 12 months. Yeah. Um, and I think we will be including like a little bit more of a, a focus on, on psychedelics. I certainly would love that. Yeah. Well, well I was going to say like you're saying you're planning out the, the next 12 months. And I know when we were talking on the phone, you were talking about just having plans of going to different cities, especially yeah. for people listening right now. Where, where would you like to be? You know, is it in the big cities? Is it more in maybe these cities that don't have as much access to psychedelic community potentially? Like, what, yeah. what does it look like for you guys? Well, I mean, I've, I've been pretty lucky. I've been able to travel a lot. I have, you know, kind of friends and family and friends and sort of stuff kind of all over the world. And 
you know, listen, we love our, our community in Southern California, um, but sometimes we feel like we're preaching to the choir. So um, there's great smart people and that community continues to grow and will continue to grow and we want to feed that. But we do want to go to markets like, for example, Tampa or Nashville or Austin or Fort Lauderdale, of course, mm -hmm. Miami. Um, we've been invited to British Columbia. Cool. Um, let's see. Uh, I just went to the East Coast. I was in Montreal last yeah. week. That's where I'm from. And I love to see where people are at mm -hmm. with psychedelics, recreationally, research. I like to see where the functional mushroom you know, market is yeah, at. Yeah. And it's different. Like the East Coast is behind the West Coast. So there's an yeah. opportunity to go there you know, and create community or help people build community. Absolutely. I spoke to someone on the phone the other day that was from Boston. And she says, there's people who are interested, but it's just not percolating like right, that. Right, right, right. So that's an opportunity to Absolutely. create this. Yeah. And then not only that, but like, then they can take it over. You yeah. Know? I think there's a real hunger for it. And I mean, you know, like the, the purpose with something like doing some a piece like this and having you guys on is so like like you said, we're in a bubble, right? We mm -hmm. have the opportunity to be in Southern California where we get to have a lot of like minded people and I think there's such a hunger for just I think there's a lot of psychedelic closeted folks out there mm -hmm. still, especially in the other states, and just being like, can I openly talk to this? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. Do the conversation. Yeah, yeah. so you're, you're absolutely right. So that's 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 the reason why I say those markets is not because they don't have people that are interested. They're just they're just separated in their little pockets. Yeah. So they need us. To, they need someone to come in and say, hey, it's okay to come and talk about this. Yeah. Now organize yourself the way you see fit. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to like, uh, and Steph, Steph and I's background is is similar but different. You know. She's very psychedelics and music forward. I'm mushrooms, water, and the anti-metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, but they play really nice, so they're all kind of cousins. Yeah. Um, but so when it comes to like what we decide to talk, we're not really choosing. Like we're, we're essentially creating the container and the format and, and, and helping develop the playbook, right? But if our, if, of our community that welcomes us in, is very psychedelic forward. We're going to go more heavy on the psychedelic yeah. content because that's what they want. That's what I yes, 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 If yes. it's a bank that says, "Hey, I love what you're doing, but please, dear Lord, do not talk <laughs> don't about you psychedelic dare talk about psilocybin. at all." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, we're going to give you some fun yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're not talking about psychedelics. Meet I function. Yeah. So you got so you got to meet people where they are, and yeah, that's I, really I what this is all about. So we're not very rigid, but we are consistent, and that's something mm. that's important. So. Um, but I think there's something to that also that that sense of flow right when you go with the flow and meeting mm -hmm. people where they're at I you know I think it's important not to beat people over their head mm -hmm. with yeah. the message because then there can be a natural resistance to it and so when you can do that and be like okay how do we like hold your hand and like dip a toe and mm -hmm. you know yeah. leads to other things yeah and the cool thing about mushrooms too is like man you don't have to like you know, it's actually better to not be in a big city if you really love mushrooms because there's so many for old growth forests and like we're, we're in a concrete jungle so we're very limited on what we have yeah. access to yeah. so there's so many pockets of people that can take so many different channels and avenues and and so it's like it's such a it's a really welcoming space and it's just like if we can help I'm yeah it allows us to be creative and find creative ways to advocate and push this mission yeah you totally. know and like that's kind of what 
I think we're both about is being creative in our strategies and a lot of people ask us you know questions on how do we make this happen how do we find more collaborators how do we find more partnerships this was a way to bring people to our yard but like other people can do this too like anything mm -hmm. you're trying to build build a community first I love that build yeah. a community a first message. because people are gonna support you and you're gonna support them and then anything that comes out of there is gonna move forward collectively mm -hmm. yeah it's not about us it's about we and it is uh, about we yeah that's like the whole like mycelium idea i mean i, I think it's that's a great network yeah i think it's a great message for people listening is like obviously if it's in your if mount mushmore is in your city definitely go and check it out <laughs> i've been to two of their events now and they're dope and obviously uh, jeremy and stuff are amazing but but also in the meantime just realizing like having maybe it's a little bit of courage to be able to start to maybe if there's like one coworker or a friend that like maybe you get a hint like could I maybe like drop a line about like psychedelics like there's so many people I think that just don't know how to say it mm -hmm. and like I think there's just that there's a little bit of that coming out of the closet that I think yeah is needed yeah. and then what finds you is we're usually guided in the right place the right person that you've mentioned like kind of trip on mushrooms like they probably do too like the one person that you decide that you finally tell they're like me too you know and then you got a friend already well we have some really <laughs> cool things that i will share on our next podcast uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. what we're doing and how to how to help help people really yeah. be vocal about it but the first step in that process before that happens is really just come to a dinner help mm -hmm. us find a way to host one in your town yeah. um and then we'll show you some other things we have in the works. So it's super <laughs> yeah. cool. But I haven't shown Chef some of the ideas. But it's uh, again, I've had enough mushrooms in the last three years that like I tell most people, it's not me, it's the mushrooms doing the work. I'm just the I'm just the, the robot doing it. So that's funny. Um, I have I have the joke with my podcast too. I was like, thanks to the. I just bless the mushrooms. Like thanks to the mushrooms for like letting me speak on their behalf sometimes. Yes, I was like, exactly. Thanks for letting me talk about you guys, and they just keep blessing me with opportunities. I'm yeah. like, it seems like they're just like giving me the a okay because yeah. just like cool stuff happens. Yeah. So yeah, we're just working for the mushrooms. It's all like good. It. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank Any you. last words I love it. you want to My only thing add? I would say, if we could just get like Mount Mushmore is, and then kind of like the second half Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay, Mount That's Mushmore funny. is community. Mount Mushmore is... is an, Mount Mushmore is an... <laughs> Mount Mushmore is an inclusive Mount Mushmore. Mount Mushmore. It's like all you do is talk about Mount Mushmore. You're like, it. what I are we it. doing? What are we doing? It's Mount Mushmore <laughs> higher elevations because we can take mushrooms Two higher elevations. Okay, we gotta start. <laughs> Mount Mushmore is an inclusive mushroom community on a global scale. Uh, we need your support in doing that, so let us come to your house and make you some mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> it's a culinary experience that is very creative, it is education, and it is community. Mount Mushmore! It's hard to say! We got a song tag going on the outro. I love it, I love it. All right. I hope you all enjoyed this episode from the MAPS Psychedelic Science Conference 2023. MAPS, thank you all so much again for inviting the trip on this team. We had such a blast. It was such a privilege to be able to talk to all of these incredible thought leaders in this space. To, for those listening and watching, I hope you all enjoyed this as well and have taken a little interest in to see just how big this psychedelic community has evolved to. Thank you all so much, as always, for being here. Trip on this.